you are loved. You are listening to teachings from the Bridge Fellowship. Our heart is to reach and teach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To listen to more teachings or support this ministry, go to youareloved.org. So we're in the book of Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 8 tonight. And um, just as a way of uh, beginning our study to give a quick up to speed, and, and if you've not been through the other chapters, would challenge you, encourage you uh, to go online and, and follow along this study with us. Uh, it's not 110% necessary. I believe you can receive straight from God's Word, but it is cool to get that broader context of what um, God's doing in Isaiah's life. And up to this point, if you've been following us, and, and i got to think, I don't know if they put that in there or not. I have a title for tonight's message. Do we have that, media? I sent it in kind of at the last minute. But it's His love and His witness. His love and His witness. That's kind of the title to kind of encapsulate this message for today. But we see in Isaiah, early on, his life, you know, it transpires in chapter 1, talks about four different kings, really leading into a fifth king that high probability uh, martyred Isaiah. Um, talked about people in Hebrews 11 being sown asunder, sawn in half, and a lot of uh, rabbinic tradition, other traditions, you know, presume this is Isaiah. So it could lead into that fifth king of Manasseh. But in Isaiah 6, we saw that Isaiah had been prophesying up those first few chapters under the reign of King Uzziah, who was a good king. 52 years, a good king for 52 years. I did the calculation. That's like 10 American presidents, right? Pretty amazing span of time, you know, compared to what in our recent history is supposed to that. But Uzziah, you know, had made some mistakes and failures. And during that time, we saw the great heavenly vision in Isaiah chapter 6, seeing the Lord. And, you know, then we fast forward to Isaiah 7, which was last week's study, and it goes up a king or two. There was Jotham, who was Uzziah's son, who was sort of a co-regent for a season there when Uzziah got smacked with leprosy for some stuff he shouldn't have been doing. And then he he reigned for 16 years. And we don't see Isaiah talking a lot about him. It goes straight into the next king. And it says Jotham was a good king. You can read about this, 2 Kings 15, 2 Chronicles 26, 27. Around those periods, you can dig this up, get a broader view of the king specifically that's being spoken to in these chapters. But the king that is in the chapter, in part tonight, is King Ahaz. He was in 7 and then 8. It's kind of uh, an extended God speaking, continuing to speak through Isaiah in the midst of the King Ahaz. And it is kind of fun to see, you know, I've got a chronological, from Valentine's Day, I got an actual physical chronological study Bible as opposed to just reading the chronological plan. But when you start getting into the kings and the prophets, you know, we're used to a book here, a book there, a book here, a book there. But when you go through chronologically, it's really fun to get the details in their exact order as opposed to a king and when a prophet's prophesying towards him. But King Ahaz is a bad king, a rotten guy. The Bible tells us that. Caused his sons to go through the fire. 
meaning that he offered his own children, flesh and blood, to idols, probably the god Molech, and sacrificed them. Pretty evil stuff compared to his father, who was considered a good king, and his grandfather, who was also considered mostly, these were considered good kings. And it's interesting because all of them are in the lineage, if you look at the genealogical records, of Jesus. Jesus allows his sort of this messed up history, if you will, to be a part of the lineage. And Isaiah is sent to speak to this king that's noted for being evil and a bad king. And I think of that out of the gate. I think of how much mercy and love God has for even the most ungodly. You know, he could have, you know, Isaiah, forget about this guy. You know what? I'm going to transport you over here, you know, to go do something else. He just, just let him have his own way, right? But we see God condescend to that Ahaz's level and send forth Isaiah to be a witness toward him. That's, that's, a, that's some amazing love there. I'm talking about a guy that sacrifices on children. I mean, this is God's mercy, no doubt, extended. And he, and he graciously does that. He did that with Ahaz. And last week we saw how specific, you know, Isaiah went with one of his children to speak to the king. And there was a messianic prophecy mixed into there. And there's some mixed in to our study tonight. So let's pick up here as this prophecy continues in part with some events that are going on around uh, King Ahaz and some of the northern king and Assyria as we get into the chapter. So Isaiah chapter 8 verse 1. Then it says, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalahashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobekiah. Now, this is no small feat. I mean, you know, we're so used to using pens and paper, right? This is ancient times. It wasn't like, you know, yeah, just go to the drugstore, pick you up a notepad and write this stuff down, Isaiah. I mean, this was no small feat for him to have this. Now, it does speak to the political class that Isaiah was, you know, had probably had relationship with previous kings. So he was in that influential entourage of where the kings um, would be perhaps in a palace or somewhere in a cabinet or just among the spiritual consultants, if you will. So there was no doubt some influence he could have access to doing these things. Now this Maher Shalahazbaz is the longest name in the Bible, right? Beat out Methuselah by a few letters, I think. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty outstanding name. And the, and the name means speed to the spoil, hurry to the plunder, all right? Just in case you guys wonder about, you know, if you have children, grandchildren coming up around the bend, this is actually a name that God tells Isaiah to name one of his children. So, hey, you want to be unique, right? Mahara <laughs> Shalashbaz, right? I don't know how you, you do an acronym with that. M-S-H-B, come here, you know. But big name. Now, 
It is cool to see that when God gives Isaiah this vision, there's some simple things that I think that are important that we can take away is that he asked Isaiah to establish the vision and the word that God had given him. Isaiah, you need to take notes, right? (laughs) Write this down. You know, you probably would have to write that long name down. You know, it's not going to like he's going to outbeat him with a a second uh, name that's even bigger than that. Like, what is it? Uh, I don't want to get into that. But so he gives him a vision, asks him to write it, and he takes witnesses for a public record. This is the priest and this Zechariah, two witnesses. Often you see that in the scriptures, two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Mentioned in the old law and in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of this as well. And, that, and that's a good thing for us to note here. I put this as a life lesson is that take note when God is establishing his word to you. And have the right kind of faithful people to help you see his word worked in your life. Right? Take note when God is establishing his word to you. And have the right kind of faithful people to help you see his word worked out in your life. This is one of the, one of the best ways to, to get the application of God's word going in your life. Write it down and get some faithful people. Notice I put in my life lesson, the right kind of faithful people. You know what I mean? You know, you, you don't want to hire the wrong kind of person to fix something at your house that has no experience in that area to fix it, right? Some common sense stuff. There you do, you want the right kind of people. I mean, if you just got saved, as an example or you're kind of new to the faith, or you're trying to grow in the Lord, you don't want to go to, you know, somebody that doesn't know anything about anything, that's more of a skeptic than they are a person that's trying to do what God's Word says. That's probably not the right person to get you off your feet and help you get going or help keep you accountable, you know? So that's just a little tidbit thrown into that first few verses. Now, verse 3. Then Isaiah says, Then I went to the prophetess, And she conceived and bore a son. This is Mrs. Isaiah. We don't know her name, right? He was a prophet, and she was a prophetess, maybe in her own right. There's a, if you want to study further, there's a lot of cool things. There's a lot of women considered prophetesses in both the New Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures. Like Moses' sister was considered a prophetess. That's a whole study if you want to pursue that further. And she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Meher Shalah Hashbaz. Because you probably forgot that when I told you the first time, right? That's worth repeating. Now, verse 4. It says, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus. And that's in Syria. And the spoil of Samaria. That's in the northern tribes of Israel. Isaiah's primarily in Judea, the southern, remember the split. And the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Now, I have a little baby girl. She started saying mama and dada around five months. She could say it, you know. I mean, just like most kids, she probably won't say it around a bunch of people she's never met before. But she'll say mama, baba, you know. So I don't know. This is, God's putting a little bit of a time. 
time stamp on the events that are getting ready to unfold. If you remember briefly in chapter 7, just to kind of you know, put some context here, the, um, <clears throat> around verse 5 and 6, there was uh, Syria, uh, Ephraim, considered a northern tribe, Ramalia, which, um, again, that's part of, uh, I think, Samaria as well. Not Samaria, but uh, Syria mixed in. Have plotted evil against you. This was a word that was written to Amaz. And it said to let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its walls for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. So Amaz, the king in Judah, was being told that, Above him, Syria, not Assyria, that's a different group. Syria, as well as the northern kingdom, had conspired to try to get rid of Ahaz. They did not like Ahaz. That was a conspiracy that was going on, that was an attempt they were trying to work out. And God revealed that to Isaiah, and Isaiah with his other son, who was a much shorter name, in the previous chapter, went before the king to speak with him concerning these things. And so this child being named speed to the spoil, hurry to plunder has a significance as we get into the rest of the chapter that we're going to see because his name is, is, is the definite, by definition a prophetic event of something that's going to go down against these kings, the northern tribe of Israel along with Syria who are plotting against Judah. So God's condescending to Ahaz to, to speak to him, to minister to him. And then, it's, then it goes on to say, so it's saying in that verse, let me just finish expounding this a little further. There in verse 4 and 5, the riches, so before this child's able to say mommy and daddy, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, those two kingdoms will be taken away by the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria is going to wipe these two guys out that are plotted against Ahaz. And then verse 5, it says, The Lord spoke also to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people, that's referring to the northern kingdom, and it can also refer, we'll see dually as we get further into this, Judah, the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin, and in Ramalia's son. Now, if you look just a page over, just for definition's sake, the scripture defines the thing, who these people are, resin and Ramalia. Verse, chapter 7, verse 8, if you want to turn a page over in your Bible, it says, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. So, Damascus, the capital city, resin, a person that's over that city, right, that's mentioned here in. Isaiah chapter 8. And then in verse 9, we get the definition. It says, it says, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. And so we get the definition, Remaliah's son is kind of the head of Samaria in the north there. So it's the northern king and then Samaria, like I mentioned before. So they, the people are rejoicing. It's God's given a contrast here, not in the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, 
but it's rejoicing in these two kings forming an alliance. The people are excited that these two evil kings and kingdoms have formed an alliance, thinking perhaps that they're going to thwart the plans of the king of Assyria. That's what their joy is placed in. That's where their plan is, uh, in perspective, is, is wrapped up in. They're not rejoicing in keeping with, really trusting the waters of Shiloh are picturesque of, of, the, of God's provision, of God's land, of God's promises. The little stream of Shiloh has sprung up from Mount Zion on the southwestern side of Jerusalem, and it flowed softly as an oil without murmur. And Jerusalem's existence and continuation depended on it. If you want to read John chapter 9, the guy that, that got mud in his eyes, that was born blind, Jesus sent him to wash at where this pool dipped out. Okay? So we see these things taking place. God's saying, instead of consulting me, they're rejoicing in these other alliances. Now, verse 7, it says, Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them. They bring, he brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria, in all his glory. He will go up over his channels and over all his banks. That's outside of his territory where Assyria is. He's, his influence is going to go up over and outside of all that. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching of his wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. Now, we'll get to that part of Emmanuel there in just a second. So, we see that King Ahaz, also in chapter 7, Stephen mentioned last week, did make a plan and an attempt to appease the king of Assyria by shutting the temple down, stripping some of the gold and the stuff that decorated the temple, some of the wealth of the temple, brought that to the king of Assyria, kind of hoping to pay him off and appease him. And it worked for a little bit, right? That was King Ahaz's plan as, you know, these other kings of Samaria, of northern Israel, were plotting against him. His goal is just to go to the, the big dog and pay for help. And we see that God's stating here, the king of Assyria is going to overflow basically everywhere. Judah, it's going to pass over them, and it's going to reach up to the neck. You know, it's interesting because the next king after Ahaz, Hezekiah, there's a situation that will come up that doesn't let the king of Assyria go up over the head <laughs> with his authority, with his power, with his rivers, with his authority. You know, It just goes up to the neck, it says in this prophecy. And so more on that when we get to those chapters. But you know, this is often, and this, this king at this time, it's pretty well-documented history stuff. You can find archaeology, other things that connect, pretty well known, this king was uh, Tiglath-Pileser III. And he was really a hub in the Assyrian Empire in terms of building up the kingdom, in terms of its military might. 
becoming real strength and strong was really underneath of him. And it's real interesting, as again, as you see the Bible and how it interconnects in so many different ways, because you got the prophet Amos, the prophet Micah, contemporary with Isaiah, and you have also Jonah, which was a little bit before, probably they lived at the same time, but he prophesied under Jeroboam II, which is the northern king in Israel, which was at the same time as Uzziah, and Isaiah was right in there around where Uzziah was. And if you remember that story, right, you know, he went and preached. This is probably 20 plus years. I was really studying hard on this stuff. I got deep, deep, deep into history and looking at all this stuff, so I feel like I have to share it. But just, you know, because I'm interested how all the Bible connects. But, you know, likely, um, the, you know, there was that time of repentance, you know, when Jonah preached to Nineveh, which was the capital city in Assyria. And so that uh, taking place had already kind of went by the wayside. It's been several years since that time. So, and there are some interesting events. If you look at that historically, there was an eclipse recorded during this time, perhaps when Jonah was prophesying. There was plagues in Assyria at that time. If you look at Amos and Uzziah, which is the same time frame of Jeroboam II, there was a huge earthquake during this time. So when Jonah got there to preach, it was probably like an easy bit, right? You think, you know, these people are evil. Why do they even respond so easily? Well, there's been some plagues and eclipse and earthquake. God primed them to you to preach, Jonah, right, <laughs> during that time. But so all these events had taken place. A few years later, Assyria forgets that, apparently, and has built their power to this high level of power. Now this, and so they're going to up and overcome them and overwhelm them. Now, this prophecy, Emmanuel, you see that old Emmanuel there in verse 8 of chapter 8? You know, it alludes back to what Steve taught last week in Isaiah chapter 7, where Matthew quotes that verse in Isaiah 7 about Emmanuel in the New Testament speaking toward Jesus. Now, this is the near-far prophecy concept that's mentioned in the Bible in a few different occasions. That prophecy for that time, um, some scholars think that may have been, you know, Isaiah thought maybe this was Hezekiah, potentially, this, this, uh, you know, this child being born. <clears throat> I, you know, if you read through, I've read through several different things. This, some people liken, they may have thought it was this Maher Shalahashbaz as being one of the children that was born or promised. But when you get into the details Steve talked about last week, and it's real fun to explore the actual context in which God gives these promises and then see the details of how they project into the future. Because, you know, there's more details that obviously Hezekiah, Maher, Shalahazbaz, neither one of these dudes could add up to the detail and the description of Emmanuel in Isaiah 7. I mean, there's no way. Because it spoke, the details spoke much more of what a king was going to be and the coming king would be. So that's how you get that farsighted thing. But this alludes back to that. In verse 8, all Emmanuel alludes back to that promise. Remember, there wasn't chapter breaks, so this was all one big thing spelled out. Now, a good question to ask. I thought as I looked at these things. This is, God's challenging them. Are you, instead of trusting me where the still waters flow, you're trusting in these kings to protect you. 
You've got your own plans to you know, mitigate problems in your life, right? And you're going to be overwhelmed because your plans don't have me factored in. That's, that's what's going on. You know, I don't know if you've ever had plans that you made. I know I have. That have backfired on you, right? Something you've done, maybe without consulting the Lord, spending time by those still waters, meditating on the Lord. You know, instead of having a quiet time and a quiet place with a quiet heart before God and making that decision in His peace, with the living water, the Holy Spirit ministering to you. You know how we get caught up in those frenzy moments? You've got to make a decision now, right? <laughs> it's just... Whenever I've done that, it's sometimes backfired on me. And that's really what's going on in the chapter in its context. I want to encourage you in simplicity. You know, let the Lord lead you. This is Psalm 23, 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. See, God leads us in still waters, like the waters of Shiloh, with peace, with restoring us, and on right paths. That's the way he leads us. Greener pastures, right? You know? And surely... Goodness, I love that verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We need to be under the spout where the blessings come out, right? I like that phrase. Under the spout where the blessings come out. And often, man, it's being connected and consistent, faithful to being in the house of God that, that we experience those still waters, that blessing from God. Now, the life lesson I put here is that wait on the Lord for his decision in a quiet place with a quiet heart and a Bible in hand. Wait on the Lord for his decision in a quiet place with a quiet heart and a Bible in hand. And it's tough, man, in our world, especially if you've got a lot of responsibilities. <laughs> it can be tough. But man, that's, that's, that's the place to be. Nurse 9, it says... God goes on to, to say to these people that wouldn't listen to his counsel, wouldn't stay in the waters of Shiloh, but trusted in these kings and their alliance and their abilities to fight against the king of Assyria. That's what they were putting their faith in. He says, be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all for you far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves. Make yourself ready but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together. Let's come together and talk about this. This bond, this trust we made in these kings to help us go up against Assyria. But it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. God is with us, maybe Isaiah, probably, speaking. You know, the plans... For Syria, for Israel, for Judah, Ahaz, trying to bribe the king of Syria, didn't mean anything. Didn't mean anything. You know, we can stockpile our goods and our resources, 
You have guns and ammo and food and resources, but if God's not with you, it don't matter. <laughs> it don't really matter. I'm not saying not to do those things. But if God's not with you, it doesn't matter. I'm sure these alliances that they made made them feel good at first. Like, yeah, we got this king, this king, you know. And they're thinking they don't like Ahaz. We'll just get rid of him. Then we'll have all Judah too. No. Made them feel good in part, but it didn't mean anything. It was a waste of time. Now, verse 11 says, For the Lord thus spoke to me, that's Isaiah saying, with a strong hand, and he instructed me, that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. You got to kind of put yourself in that atmosphere. You know, the king of Assyria had had some feats and had looked strong, and so therefore these little alliances were happening, right, that's talking about in the text. And so they're in that atmosphere. All right, there's a power. The king of Assyria, he's out there. Evil king. They do evil things when they capture their people. We got to form this alliance. You know, you just, there's a lot of crosstalk. Probably not, I'm saying this is a poetic license thing. It's not necessarily in the text. Probably a lot of crosstalk about what might happen. Oh no, what's the government going to do? You know, what's going to happen? I don't know. What's going to happen? You know, Martha, what are we going to do? You know, just all these things going on. There's a conspiracy over here. There's a conspiracy over there. There's one over there too. What does the Lord say? Don't talk like them. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled. Don't get caught up in all that rhetoric. And, you know, the funny thing is, is there's truth to it all. It wasn't like, you know, we use that as a negative connotation today, right? Conspiracy theorist, you know. That's pretty much what people say when they haven't put a due process through certain pieces of information. So they use it sort of as a dismissive thing. Just to kind of not, well, let's not think about it or talk about it any further. Conspiracy theory, you know. Well, where, where's your evidence, you know, something like that. You know, sometimes it's dismissive of not willing to apply a due process mindset or scientific method to information. It's open-ended. It hadn't, the case hadn't came in fully. So people thinking outside of what an already established authority says is labeled conspiracy theory in some circles, right? We see, we see that pretty regularly in our culture. And there was something to this one because... I mean, God's speaking straight, straight to it. He's got a word. He's telling them what that word is. But he's, part of that word is don't call a conspiracy what they, what they call a conspiracy. Don't talk like them. Don't get caught up in that mess. Don't be afraid of them. Fear not. In the Bible, over 365 times, fear not. God has not given us a spirit of fear, of timidity and fear, but of boldness, power, and a sound mind. That's God's spirit. So anything outside of that is another spirit, maybe, right? So be careful. And don't be troubled. You know, we hear all this speculation of stuff in our day. I wrote these 
just little fast, fun facts. 85% of what subjects, this is a study, 85% of what subjects worried about never happened. And with the 15% that did happen, 79% of the subjects discovered that they could handle the difficulty better than expected, or the difficulty taught them an important lesson worth learning. So this means that 97% of what you worry over is not much more than a fearful mind punishing you with exaggerations and misperceptions. You know, Winston Hurt Churchill said, when I look back on all these worries, I remember the story of an old man who said on his deathbed that he had a lot of trouble in his life, most of which never happened. <laughs> why, why would we take the little time cards that God's given us here on planet Earth and just start throwing them at stuff that just isn't, doesn't even ever materialize into anything? Fears, concerns, worries, speculations, Right? And to put as a life lesson is that let not your heart be troubled. That's Jesus. Let not your heart be troubled. I mean, think about what if we took those time cars that God's given us and really concentrated on Jesus and loving him and loving the person and the people that are right in front of us. To the best, love them the best that we can for the kingdom. What if, what if, what if our time cards were put into that? You know, more so than, well, if I don't do this today, then next year and three years and four years and five years from now, this, that, or the other might happen. I'm not saying don't plan, I'm not telling you what to do, but just some things to think about, right? Verse 13. It says, the Lord of hosts, in contrast, this is in contrast to the people, right, that are conspiracy this. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled by them. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Him, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. You know, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, our placement of the things that we invest time, we invest energy and resources in that are potentially apart from the Lord or you know, not directly related to what he's desiring us to do, <clears throat> it's misplaced as opposed to getting caught up in what God has in store for us. From, from, and this is not, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, I don't want to get way too deep on it, because it does say in 1 John that, you know, perfect love casts out fear. So what is the fear of the Lord if perfect love casts out fear? Well, I think it's, I think it's simply not desiring, for us it's not desiring to do anything to damage, to, you know, impugn the character of the God that loved us perfectly. It's like, you know, he's loved me so much. Well, I, you know, I don't want to do something that would grieve the spirit. I want to do something that would break his heart. I want to do something that he died to set me free from, right? I'm, I'm afraid to do something like that. 
Not because it's like, oh, no. You know, sometimes it needs to be, oh, no, you know. Like if you get close to this whatever outlet with a fork and you get, you're about to hit it. And, oh, no. Yeah, it is an oh, no. But, uh, and there should be fear. But it's not like I walk around in perpetual fear of electricity, right? It's that moment when that violation of that law might have a profound effect that I'm like, whoa, you know. Same thing in our relationship with the Lord, man. It's just like anything might have a profound effect against our relationship with the Lord. We should be like, whoa, no, no, sir, you know. It's not, that's not the Lord. I don't please the Lord. I don't honor the Lord. It's that kind of fear that we walk in of the Lord, right? Now, verse 14, it says, he will be as a sanctuary. I really love that phrase. He will be as a sanctuary. I used to sing this song. It says, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. The cool thing is, is that his Holy Spirit dwells within us. He's with me everywhere I go. And he, he's my sanctuary. Even when I'm not in a sanctuary, per se, like we would call this a sanctuary. He is my sanctuary. He is with me wherever I go. So even if I'm not in my prayer closet, even if I'm not in a church setting, he, he's able to sanctify my time with him. I don't know if you've had the experience, but, you know, I had this cool discovery. I found these Bluetooth headsets, right? <laughs> I put on like worship in one ear, man. And I'm going about task and doing things, man. There's a song in my soul, man. You know, it's like, man, God is good. You know, I'm praising. Sometimes I'm singing a song. And it's like the sanctuary, the spirit's just, it's just opened up right where I'm at, you know. Some people are like, what is the matter with that guy, you know. It's like, going to heaven, man. The Lord's good. His heaven's in here right now. He's with me right now. It's good. He's good. But it, it is something special. You know, allow the Lord to make holy ground wherever you go. But, continue there in verse 14. He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the, both the houses of Israel. That's the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. As a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. And in essence, because they didn't choose to fear the Lord, they ultimately, by putting their hope in these kings, chose to fear man. And Proverbs tell us to fear man is a snare, right? It's a snare. You know, we see this as quoted in two places in the New Testament, this verse Isaiah, 1 Peter 2, 6-8. says, Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe, to those of us that are trusting in Jesus, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Because they disobeyed the Lord. They weren't looking to the Lord in this chapter. And in First Peter, 
they stumble. You know, it's interesting because, you know, the rock can be your foundation. And you be strong and not be stumbled and not moved. But if it's not your foundation, if it's not your chief cornerstone, if he's not king, you're going to just stumble over it, right? And it's pretty easy to see that. Why? Because you're building your life on something else besides the foundation. And that is all going to burn up. It's all going to stumble. It's all sand, castles, right? And then we see Romans. Paul says this. I thought this is a good context. Paul's teaching 9. 30 through 33, it says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay a stone in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So Paul's using that Isaiah quote to talk about the difference between Gentiles that have trusted in God by faith and received righteousness from God, as opposed to the Jewish people who are trying to work it out, make it happen on their own. Couldn't do it. Because that wasn't God's way. That's not God's way today. You know, it's, it's, we don't receive, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. And that's what they were doing. Work. Got to make it happen. Get my righteousness. Do it. Do it. You know. No. It's, it's about your faith in God's ability to work it in you. That's what it was supposed to be. The life lesson of put says he will be a rock for you or he will he will rock you. Right? I know. That's that's cheesy. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's a little cheesy, right? <clears throat> but it's 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 it'll help you remember, right? He will be a rock for you or he will he will rock you. All right, now verse 16. Really, you you just rock yourself to pieces. That's what it is. Verse 16, bind up the testimony. Isaiah speaking. Bind up this testimony. The testimony of what he just heard about. Mal, I mean, I keep, I got to get a short name, Mal. Right? (laughs) Mahar, Alash, Hashbaz, whatever. You know, that's some of the testimony. Bind this testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. So, Apparently, Isaiah, through his influence, remember he was called in Isaiah 6. Now, that's at the year King Uzziah died. Jothan reigned 16 years. Ahaz, uh, I forgot off the top of my head how long he reigned. But 20 plus years at least have transpired. So Isaiah, serving in his calling, has disciples, students. You know, he's a Jedi master. He has little apprentices underneath of him that are following Jesus. I always use that analogy to help me to think of disciples. But So that's, that's, that's what's going on here. You know, you know, and I think how important it is, bind up the testimony for us to have the blood of Jesus that covers our sin, right? Having 
It says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, Revelation 12, 11. How that really is like putting the silver bullet in our weapon of our spiritual warfare and defeating the enemy. Because it specifically states that in the verse. We overcome him, the enemy, the accuser in Revelation 12, by the blood, his blood, and the word of our testimony. It's super important, right, that we, we, we build each other up with our testimonies, and we keep his word, right? Keep his word sealed among the disciples. Verse 17, it says, And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Now, this idea of waiting on the Lord is not sitting around just doing nothing. It's like, oh, we're going to wait on the Lord, you know, just not do anything. I'm waiting on the Lord, you know. This is like waiting, like waiting a table, kind of waiting on the Lord. It's serving, if you will, while you're waiting on the Lord, serving the Lord. And, and that's important is that, especially as disciples of Jesus now, is that we're faithful in serving in some capacity, right? It's hard for God to, it's hard to take a, a parked car that the ignition turned off and, and turn it somewhere, right? It needs to be moving, to a certain level, right, for it to go somewhere, right? You know, and it's important. You're faithful in small things. Don't despise the day of small things. We're serving in small ways, honoring God with what he's blessed us with. And uh, he takes us often way beyond that when we're doing that. But anyway, you know, it is, there is that sense mixed in there that he is expectantly waiting that God will move in regards to the prophecy given to him, as we mentioned in the chapter. Now, verse 18, it says, Here I am, and the the children of whom the Lord has given me. So, we mentioned there in, I think it's Isaiah 7, 8, or 7, 3, it talks about the other child that was with Isaiah. It says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, that's when he met the king, you and Shear Jashub, your son. Now, this was... His other son before Mael, Mayor Shalahashbaz, that was before him, his other son. At the end of your aqueduct or the upper pool, the upper highway of the fuller's field. So the Lord, ha- or Isaiah has both his sons. Here I am and the children, that's uh, Shear Jeshub in Isaiah 7 3, and then Mayor Halashashbaz. I'm going to mess that, butcher that up <laughs> too many times. They're going to have those two sons. My children are with me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Now that we are is not in the Hebrew. You could just say, I'm with the children the Lord's given me for signs and wonders. My children are for signs and wonders. Because the name of Meher Shala Hashbaz, I'm reading it carefully instead of trying to say it off the cuff, <laughs> you know, means the fulfillment of the king of Assyria will overtake these two cities before the child says, Mommy, Daddy, right? So that's the sign, that's the wonder that Isaiah is talking about, okay? It's not signs and wonders like, oh, chase miracles or something silly like that. That's not the case here. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about my children are the testimony. They are the sign and the wonder that God is using. And, uh, and I think that's awesome. 
that God uses Isaiah's children to minister with him. I mean, taking his son before the king, you know. And sometimes kids just have an amazing way of breaking the ice, especially if they're cute little kids, right? You know, it's, it's um, you know, I've seen many doors open where, you know, I've, you know, there's this one customer I have that I've got like several, like 40 plus customers. It's really difficult to deal with. And uh, I started to just chat with this person, try to build a rapport because they're so difficult to deal with. It's like, all right, I got to get them thinking about something else besides just always negative. So I was talking about, you know, family and stuff. And I was like, hey, I got a little, you know, baby girl. She just started talking and walking. Really? You know, start showing a picture and all of a sudden their heart just melts and they're open and they're talking to you and stuff. And it's a great opportunity to share the Lord then because then what are they going to say, right? <laughs> but... You know, God uses the family. As Psalm 127, verse 4 and 5, it says, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed and happy and fortunate is the man his quivers filled with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in gatherings at the city gates. Interesting how Isaiah brought his first son to the king and prophesied to him. And it's, it's just really neat how the Lord uses children. You know, if you got kids, maybe you can serve in children's ministry if you don't have kids or grandkids. I mean, there's ways of connecting. It's such a great way to minister and allowing our kids to be in ministry with us. I think of my son, Jacob. He's four. We were doing some type of devotion, and he started talking about Paul. And uh, I think the little devotional talked a little bit briefly about Paul and a shipwreck. He's like, hey, isn't there like a super book lesson? You know, it's kind of our, like an animated series that we go through the Bible with the kids here. It's like, yeah, there's a, there's a series on Paul's shipwreck, you know, and I say, like, well, maybe we'll watch it, you know, so we watched it. Um, I think it was on Shabbat. We took the time to watch it, and there was a guy messaging me um, needing some ministry, and, uh, and I, so I called this guy. He just needed a brother to talk to. I said, yeah, I'll talk with you, man. I started chatting with him, and I used that story <laughs> to talk to this guy. About the things the Lord is talking about, you know, the book of Acts, you know, Paul had set his heart to go to Rome and and then, you know, there's spiritual people saying, Paul, you can't do that, you know, and then he gets into this, you know, big fight with the Jewish people trying to preach to him. They're trying to beat him down. The Roman guard has to save him from that, you know. He gets thrown, you know, in jail. He has to sit before Festus, you know, he has that situation. Then he ends up getting on a ship, going to Rome. He's like, yes, I'm finally going to see Caesar. Bam, you know, gets in a wreck, destroys his boat and stuff. And it's like at any point along the way, Paul could have been like, this is totally not God. And, you know, I should have listened to those guys back, you know, that told me that I was going to get thrown in prison. That's how I would think, you know, initially and like, but, but God came through. He sent an angel to encourage him. You see other moments where God encouraged Paul through all along the way to, 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 to his, that one desire to preach the gospel, see Caesar, right? And I said, that's often how it is, bro. That's how I was talking to this guy. I was like, man, it's, you set your heart to serve the Lord. And all of a sudden, it's like all this stuff starts happening in your life. And I said, you've got to get closer to the Lord and renew your mind toward that vision he gave you. And continue to press on. Because every outward circumstance possible, you read that story, right? I would have quit a long time ago you know, if I had just a little bit of persecution. But he pressed on. He pushed in. God used that in a powerful way. You know, but you know, all that was from my son, you know. 
Just sparking the conversation, how the Lord works. The life lesson I put here is don't let your children wander in the ways of the world. Train them to be a wonder for the wonderful counselor. Amen. Isaiah said, we, our children, my family, are for signs and wonders in Israel. Verse 19. It says, and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? No, we obviously have an obvious historical example. They, they should have one. And their first king, Saul, right? Who wrongly, in an act of kind of hitting a downward spiral, you know, he disobeyed. God told him wasn't going to make it. He don't feel like he's hearing from God. So what does he do? He goes to a medium to consult the dead, supposedly, Samuel, and get insight about what he should do because he felt like God had forsaken him. God strictly prohibits this type of stuff. You know, you want to name it out. I mean, like crystal balls, palm reading, astrology sign reading, you know, getting, um, you know, the psychic hotline. I thought it was funny. I heard a pastor talking about this. Said, you know, I've always wanted, I've never done this, but I've always wanted to just call the psychic hotline and have them pick up the phone. And they say, Hey, how can I help you? What's your name? You should know. You tell me. <laughs> right? <laughs> Here's the psychic hotline. We need your credit card information. You got it. You should know, right? <laughs> you should have mine. I don't you're psychic, right? Oh, so I thought it was funny. But, um, you, know, it is, you know, it is funny, though, talking about the dead people seeking the dead. I don't think our culture is too far in some ways from running after that. I mean, I hear people in Christian circles. And I mean, I understand they don't may probably mean it to the nth degree in which I'm getting ready to explain it. But it's interesting if you follow some logical steps, it ain't that far to get to this consultation with the dead. You know, people talk often. I hear people talk like, I know they're just watching over me. You know, well, if they're in the presence of Jesus, they're probably like blown away by him right now. You know, I mean, no offense personally in any way. I mean, they're probably blown away by him more than anything. You know, or, or you know, I feel their presence with me. You know, they're, they somehow God's let them come around and become a ghost and they're haunting me or something weird. Or they're trying to speak to me still or got unresolved issues. You see that you start playing with that narrative a little bit. It all of a sudden gets conflated. And you know, a lot of ancient cultures, Chinese cultures, you know, cultures of the past, of pagan cultures, really bought into heavily this consultation with dead ancestors. And God prohibits that. I mean, it's just prohibited. I mean, you know, the next thing you know, you got Whoopi Goldberg embodying some spirit of an old relative, right? That was some movie, sorry. If you don't follow that reference. <laughs> but um, she's playing a medium. But anyway. But, you know, it, it goes down a, a bad way, a bad trail. And that's what's happening in this culture. I mean, Isaiah wouldn't be speaking to it. God wouldn't be speaking to it if it wasn't some form of that occurring or the temptation of that at hand, you know, as opposed to seeking God, seeking through these other methods. Verse 20 says, to the law and to the testimony. 
If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. This is huge. This is huge. It's people, you know, the enemy says, in, it talks about the enemy being, presents himself as an angel of light. That's how he comes. He doesn't come in like some, you know, just some horror flim. I mean, he can work through that too, I'm sure. But, you know, it's, it's often in a subtle way. You know, it's not just, it's Jesus and something else is often what our culture these days are presenting to us. But if it's not according to the word, it's because there's no light in them. If it's not biblical, if it's not according to God's truth, then there's no light in it. It's a dead source. You know, and people flounder with and play with other religions, new age philosophies, try to amalgamate that in, mix it in a little bit with the, with the word. And it's, it's garbage, man. It's garbage. It's like, oh yeah, Jesus has some good stuff, but what about Buddha? He had some good stuff too. No, he didn't. And obviously he didn't have anything good on weight loss. I mean, you know, but, um, but he, he just didn't have anything. I mean, part of it is, is there's elements of things that you can look at in other cultures, in other religions, in other philosophies. And you could say, hey, I, I see sort of that principle mixed into the Bible. And there may be a certain sentiment of that, that, that that's true, right? That, yeah, okay, yeah, that, that probably is true. But, you know, here's, here's what the reality is. You know, there's a dumpster out back here we got. We put a lot of garbage in. There might be a piece of food in there that's edible, you know. You might survive if you eat that piece of food. But is that a great place to go find a meal? Please say no. Please say nothing. <laughs> Please say nothing. No, we don't go to the garbage can to find food, unless you're starving. But you know, some people do. But I mean, but it's not the ideal place you go. You know, when we're sourcing for truth, we shouldn't be sourcing things outside of God's word as a primary source. I mean, we can use things like Paul did when he went and talked and said, "Hey, there's an unknown God." Did Paul sit at the feet of the unknown God and worship him and read his books? No. He just used, let me, I can use this for an illustration. Just extrapolate that and talk about the real God, you know. It's a difference between the two, right? You've got to know the difference. The life lesson I put here is don't get your spiritual food and truth from the trash can of sources outside of God's word. To the word and to the testimony to the word and to the testimony. The Bible is filled with two to 3,000 promises. You can ingest the Bible three chapters a day. They call it a pulpit pace. That If you read the Bible at a pulpit pace, I don't know what a pulpit pace is. You're like, yeah, we know. It's already time to leave. What are you talking? You're still talking. No, but, <laughs> no, but it's a pulpit pace. You know, some phrase they use when they're reading the Bible from, I guess, out loud from pulpits. But is you know, they say you can read the Bible basically in about 70 hours and 40 minutes. That's, that's less than three days, right? A little less than three days. Say it's three days. Listen to this. So three days you can read the entire Bible cover to cover. 
I mean, nonstop three days, not like three, eight hours, three, 24 hours, three days. No, think of these things. I was listening to these numbers. 33 years, average person, if you take the time metrics and average sleep spans, 33 per years a person will be in bed. 26 years of that sleeping, seven years trying to go to sleep. Four and a half years eating of your life. 8.4 years watching television. Um, 13, a little over 13 years actual working. Uh, with screen time stuff, they're saying about 11.4 years of screen time. You'll spend, some average person will spend 92 days in the bathroom of their life. Just think about that. If you multitask, you could have read the Bible 30 times in your life, right? 30 times. I mean, just reading through the scriptures. But putting the word in, in our hearts, it's such a high priority to expose ourselves just to the, to the word being taught. I mean, I've got the audio, I've got theatrical audio of the word I listen to. I've got the reading of the word. I've got a little waterproof Bible I can read in the shower. It's pretty cool, you know. But um, there's ways of ingesting the word. And I'm not going to go deep on this, but I thought this was a good life lesson I put together. Y'all can take it further if you want. <clears throat> life lesson, handling God's word. We should read it through. We should be able to have it read through. We should understand the context of it. Not being a nibbler only. It's okay getting a devotional here and there, but we should really know it through and through, right? Pray it in. This is how we get the most out of the word. We read it through. We pray it in. Number three, write it down. You know, Habakkuk wrote down the vision he heard from God. Isaiah was commanded by God to write down this thing with his son, right? You know, the kings in the Old Testament had to write out the whole Old Testament as a king. Write it down. It does something. You know, I'm not a good handwriter, but I try to take notes in different ways. Work it out. Create a workout plan where you try to take what you're learning and put it into practice, right? I mean, I don't know why people live in a theoretical world when it comes to the Bible. I don't do that when I play sports. I don't sit there and read a book on basketball watch a video on basketball, think about it, say, oh, yeah, that's neat, and just speculate over it. If I'm a player, I play. I get out there and do it, you know. We're called to be doers of the word, you know, work it out, pass it on. One of the best ways I get from God's word is sharing what I've learned with somebody else. Sharing what I've learned with somebody else. And and it helps one another. I mean, I hear people, and, and feel free, I mean, you know, don't feel weird, like, you know, I didn't know that, or you already know this, and whatever. Dude, it's, it's not like that, man, with the Bible. I mean, the Bible is like, I mean, you go to exercise, you don't do one sit-up. Say, like, whoa, I got that exercise routine down. You know, people read the Bible like that, and it's just like, yeah, I read that story. There's more to it, man. Work it out. Let the Holy Spirit work it in your life, right? I could really spend a whole teaching on that. We won't. Verse 21. To the law and the testament. Verse 21. It says, they will pass through it, hard-pressed and hungry. Now, it's speaking back toward our context text, talking about those that didn't heed, right? Those that didn't heed, that fall on the stumbling stone. They'll pass through it, hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. So God's issuing a warning 
about these things to these people. You know, you're not, you're not seeking the waters of Shiloh. You're trusting in these kings, and it's going to go bad. And then it goes down, what God said would happen. They're ticked at God. You know, they're mad at God. God, why did you let this happen? You know, sometimes we get like that, right? If you're a God of love, why is this happening to me? You know, the people in Revelation curse God, right? Even though they know the, the things come from God. But God lovingly warns us so often. He lovingly warns us. Ride down the road, see a sign. Bridges out two miles. Keep on riding. Bridges out one mile. Keep on riding. Bridges out 500 feet. God, why do you not love me? It's like, dude, warnings, hello, (laughs) all along the way. I mean, that's his mercy. That's his mercy. And yet, sometimes we get mad at God, even though he's, hey, look, read the book, right? Just take a snippet out of those 11.4 years of screen time and read the book, right? Just a little bit, you know, and get some insight. Verse 22, it says, Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. And this is a sad time for these people, for King Ahaz, for these other kings that plotted against him, for the, all the people that are caught up in the poor leadership of these kings. They followed it, most of them, a lot of them, are driven into the darkness of allowing this evil re- regime of Assyria to take over. And it should bother us. I put this as a final life lesson. So if our worship team wants to come out, I'm going to read this final life lesson and we'll take a minute to pray. It says it should bother us that some people are in dark, in the dark concerning the life and the love of Jesus. It should bother us. It bothered God enough to send Isaiah to give this passionate plea to give this heads up of what's coming on, what's coming down. And here's how I want to let you know that these guys aren't going to attack you. That's not going to be the way it happens. That was God's mercy, right? Our hearts should be willing, be like Isaiah, willing to be a witness to them, to love and serve them, to pray for them with a fresh burden, and expect God to move in their life for salvation. And growing as a disciple. We want our hearts intermingled with His love to be His witness. Because unfortunately, the circumstances in our world are driving more and more people into the dark. I mean, it's just like the gas and the accelerator is just. like push a little bit harder than it ever has been before and people are forced with a choice wouldn't we love wouldn't you love wouldn't I love for us and for the people that we know in those prospective spheres of influence and you know when I say being driven into darkness you know there's a person in your workplace you know there's a person in your family 
that is on that broad path of destruction and they are headed down that way quickly. The question is, is do we have the same heart that God had to want to reach his people, to warn these people, to show them love by doing so. Even if they ultimately reject it, and they will, some will, some will, some won't. But to leave the hope out there, the lifeline out there, that's his love, that's his witness. Let me pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your love and your mercy extended to each one of us that are in this room and those that are also watching online or maybe listening through a podcast or some other method. Your love has been extended graciously to each one of us. Not only did you warn of what the darkness could do, Lord, you stepped into it in the darkest hour this planet has ever seen was when the Father poured down all His wrath on on Jesus. He took the brunt of the evil that, that we chose so that we might be forgiven. Maybe you're in here tonight and maybe the, the sweetness and the savor of what God has done for us in salvation has kind of lost its flavor. Maybe it's become a little rudimentary. And we miss seeing the, the joy that he purchased for us. I invite you to pray to recommit your life. If, if you're listening and you've not committed your way to his Maybe you've wandered from the spout where the blessings come out. You created your own plans. You're trusting in your own scheme like these people were in this chapter. God calls you to repent, to taste the living water, fresh and anew. We're going to allow the worship team to play. If the Lord's dealing with you about anything, you're in this room. If you want to come to the altar, I'd love to pray with you, pray for you. So that you have for 
thank you. Lord, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Romans 5 tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's your great love, Lord, where you extend yourself in that dark path that we're in and take all our poor choices, all our wrong mistakes upon your body so that we can receive forgiveness. Not just drink from the waters, Lord, but allow the waters to flow through us. If you're in here and you've been on that path where you're creating your own plan and you're abandoning those still waters that he wants to lead you in and by as your good shepherd, you've never received him or if you've wandered away and you need to return fully over to him I invite you to pray you can pray with me just make it your own prayer from your own heart to the Lord agreeing that you need his forgiveness agreeing that God has raised him from the dead so he could have a new life the Bible says if we confess with our mouths He's faithful and just to forgive us and extend salvation to us. So I invite you to pray wherever you are, online, up front, wherever you're listening. Stop and pray with me right now. Dear Lord Jesus, Lord, I believe in you. I believe that you died for me. 
so that I could be forgiven. I ask that you would forgive me afresh. I believe that you you were raised from the dead so I could have a new life. I ask that you give me the power to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May bid you his peace, his shalom, in the name of Hashem Yahshua, that is the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks again for listening to teachings from the Bridge Fellowship. Feel free to share these teachings for free, but do not sell or alter these recordings in any way. For more teachings or to support this ministry, go to youareloved.org. And remember, you are loved.